So if you suggested, say you suggested to your manager that you think it would be really productive to have two days working from home for everybody on the engineering team. And they were like, well, I don't know if that'll work because of the way that our meetings are structured. Then you then you pull out your copy of Remote by Jason Fried and David Heinmeier Hansen. You slap him in the face with it and you walk off. <laughs> Wow, there's sound. There's a waveform. Okay. All right. It's always something, guys. So Albert doesn't know how to make audio it's things work. always something. Okay. Greg, this is episode 20. We're not starting <laughs> over. <laughs> we don't Get start. out of here. Oh, man. It was going to happen eventually. It's fine, folks. We, I'm pretty sure we lost... I don't know. We lost a chunk of our audio, but we have some of it. So how I'm do you know when it, how do you know when it's I'm going to have to go back and listen to it on another machine. I don't know. It, how do we know what to talk about? The way the stuff, the routing stuff works is, is pretty tricky. Okay. So we were talking about, yeah, we don't know where to record it. Well, just we'll talk and I'll go back in the edit and figure out where stuff is and make it work. Yeah, but what if do. we missed a whole part of the conversation? It's fine. It's okay. Well, okay. So I'll just start at like the junior to you to mid split and you can see if this audio is better. Okay. So you started at your company. You had essentially no web development experience. You went way back, way back. But yes, yes. And I you had, started in QA. Yep. And that's actually a very common career path is for people to start in QA and then move towards more development stuff because you see a lot of the processes. You see all the things behind the scenes. You see all the things. So what was... What would you say was the biggest thing that moved you from, say, a QA person that did very little code to a junior, and then from a junior to say like a mid? Yeah, I mean, when I was a, when I was in QA, there was nothing. See, when I started, I wanted to be a coder, but they just weren't hiring for coders. They were only hiring for QA, and I knew someone who worked there who referred me, and she was like, "Well, they're not." They're not hiring for a developer, but they are hiring for QA. So I was like, okay, I, I guess. So at that time, I didn't have any. I didn't have any formal training in development. Like I didn't have a computer science degree. I didn't have like a, a lot of experience with web development. So I just went there, and I was like, all right, I'll figure it out. She's staring at the, the waveforms again, and it scares me. I can't see them because I'm facing the way. I mean, it's it's well, easy for you to turn your head. You need to quality assure your audio better. I did it. So anyways, yeah, I went there and I started doing QA stuff and the one of the managers in the QA team really wanted to start an automation workflow. He wanted to make it so that we could sell automation to our clients because we would sell them QA and it would be a certain percentage of the development time. So say the project was X amount of time, 80% of that was in development and 20% was in QA and there's a ratio. There's like a golden ratio of like 70-30 if you want a really good product. Or 80-20 if you need to do QA pretty short. 80-10 or 90-10, you should just not even try. You just don't have enough time to you actually build the thing. don't have enough time to build a thing and you should be thinking about what you're doing. So yeah, QA should be probably 20, 25, 30% of a project's time. But it really depends how you approach QA. Because, you know, if you have the philosophy that everybody who touches code has to QA it, well, then you might need less QA time on the tail end, which is how companies like, you know, Facebook create such high velocity. They test things themselves. They have QA people that validate things. 
you have very robust QA systems in place yeah. all the way down to the individual developer and like unit Code test reviews, suites and stuff. Unit test yeah. suites. I mean, there's ways you can create velocity, but you know, in advertising, that isn't always the goal. I mean, the goal is not to, the goal is to do as much work as you can and quality work because you want, you want your work at least on the, at the very least, you want it to look good because you're usually a creative agency. And on the best case, you want it to work really well because you're trying to deliver something to a client that you want to do more work on. So you don't want it to break halfway through. So it's this constant like fear inside that what you're going to release is going to break or topple when it gets to production. And a lot of, uh, some agencies may not spend as much time on infrastructure. Right, because a lot of the times in that industry, you don't know if you're going to be maintaining things going forward or if you're mm -hmm. trying to build an entire system, especially if you're building something new, you don't really know how greenfield that is. And so there's varying levels of emphasis on the QA stuff. Yeah. And the way that I always approached it, and I think the way that I approach it now, even to this day, is that I, I think that there should be a high percentage of the amount of work that you're doing Maybe not on a project by project basis, but like in general, there's a high, there's a high focus on quality. What if, whether that's unit testing, which sometimes doesn't always work out. Like, I mean, we don't, in the past, we never unit tested anything, but like even on the most recent project I worked on, I unit tested certain aspects of the project that were very low level, like local storage, writing, um, time related stuff, um, any weird trick stuff with parsing of any kind of like utilities that you would use, parsing of URLs, pulling off things, putting things in URLs potentially that's not done by a router, like any of that kind of stuff I would unit test, but I, we don't really unit test views. But I guess to answer the question, that, that attention to quality and that focus on quality related tools, whether they're things that you're building or things that you adopt, I think is what really led me to becoming like a, it's more for, it's more on the higher end. Like that's what made me a really good senior, I think. But in terms of the mid-level development before the audio broke, because you know this box apparently didn't want to work tonight. Um, well, he's all mad because I'm making fun of his box. <laughs> I like to mess with Albert every once in a while. Um, yeah. So like the big thing that made me, um, I think, go from being a junior to being a mid is discovering Laravel. I hope we had a lot of that audio because I was explaining it really well, but um, just like understanding how an entire application works and how um, you, you know, you store data in a database. You're the one that's responsible for writing it to the database. You're the one that's responsible for reading it from the database, the performance of writing things to a database. You know, what do you put indexes on? How do you query data? How do you write your queries? You know, Laravel has a lot of support for eager loading of queries and, you know, complicated where clauses and it's all done with an ORM. But you have to like learn what all those things are and you have to learn how to use them all. And now nowadays people build a lot of things in, in Node. They kind of will use ORMs, but they're ORM packages, type ORM or whatever. There's a bunch of them. Yeah, you're given the ORM rather than... Well, you were in Laravel too, but Laravel, it was like, it was tied into the way that the models worked. There was like a concept where it was all glued. It's just a really beautiful framework. Like it's really cool to use. And I think working on a lot of Laravel projects and kind of shepherding, bringing Laravel to the projects that I worked on at work was just a real reason why um, the first project I built as a junior and then like as a mid, I used it on a few key projects that we had and just trying to shepherd it and bring it to the 
other engineering um, leads to like realize that it was a good framework, I think is what really led me to being a mid. Um, and at a mid level, it was more like people were giving me things to do that weren't defined. Like, go build this thing. You know, it's an idea that someone had. You know, let's make it so that you can parse this PDF for text and run it on a server and like make it do these things. And you're just like, I don't know how I would build that. And they're like, okay, we'll figure it out. You have, an, you, have, you have like four weeks, go figure it out. Like that kind of ability to go off on your own and build things. There was a lot of mission critical stuff that I was building where someone was specifically telling me what to do. But there was some things where it was starting to be the, the, the starting to be the situation where I would just have to figure something out myself. And I did that for a long time. I was in mid for, I think, three years. I think that's a really excellent point is that the difference between some of these levels that we're talking about are not a specific skill set or a particular language or a specific stack. It is ways of thinking about systems. Yeah. Right? So when you go from a junior level of experience where you really aren't thinking at the architecture level of things or the systems level of things, you're just kind of executing tasks that you're given or, you know, doing a lot of things with a lot of help. The the phase from that, the change from that to mid-level is more of, I've heard the mid-level be referred to as a fire and forget missile where you can give someone a task and reasonably expect that they can complete it mm-hmm. uh, without a whole lot of supervision. And you can see just through that description how valuable someone like that is in a yeah. technology organization. So I think that's a very good distinction. So that's a super good point of pointing out these differences between these levels. Yeah, I think it, I think it really comes down to like the the thing about this the skill of what you know how to do is that you can have you can have someone straight out of college who maybe did learn or had an interest in web development come out of college and be almost a senior level at development. Potentially. I mean, you know, uh, I, I learned on the job. I didn't have a computer science degree. I learned a lot of what I know about technology over the past seven years of working with it. But I think what I would say in the past seven years, what I've learned is not really just like how to write code or how to think of, sorry, not how to actually physically write code, the craft of it. Like, yeah, I've learned that. But I think it's just one of the crazy things about advertising is you're exposed to such like the the at least in my agency, you're exposed to such projects that are completely different. On one hand, it could be like a simple campaign website with a lot of front end, and it's just a it's just HTML, CSS, and a little bit of JavaScript and some interactivity and some animations to a brand website with an entire like backend system with a whole data jujitsu data jujitsu situations where you're you know querying data, caching it for availability on prod and solar and like all kinds of crazy stuff that you would never have thought of doing. It would never have occurred to me to do that. But that's the kind of stuff you have to do. And, you know, we had juniors that come on that are integrated into that system and learn how to learn how to work within that system that we, you know, we built, a lot of senior developers built, but, you know, you would have a junior who comes in and to be competent or useful on that project, you have to just hit the ground running. And we've had some really talented developers come in as juniors and leave, I think, even at a senior level. Not in title, but like in skill set. Yes. But I, I think would, that... I would agree with you on that. Yeah, getting back to like the 
the point about the the I would, what you would call like the soft skills is just there's there's kind of like a combination of this. Some people are inherently good at talking to people and inherently good at handling social situations and work situations, and they're just like gifted managers and they're good at that. Um, and there's other people that have to work on it. You know, have to work to be good at people skills. But I think another thing that really is key is just learning that everything that you work on as a developer for a brand has an inherent level of risk and it has an inherent level of responsibility that's given to you as the person who's building that system. And a lot of the times, I'm only speaking about this specifically from advertising aspect because a lot of larger businesses have much more streamlined development flows where there's other people to support you. And there's other, there's other people that, you know, like even I was listening to this podcast about Facebook and they were saying that, you know, within the first week of being a Facebook, you're pushing code to prod. And if you're not, people are saying, why are you not? You know, why did you not get that code ready? And it's because their level of expectations on their entry-level developers, the people who just start, is that they have to move fast. And if you can't move fast and at the rate at which they release features, then you're kind of a burden. Like if you can't figure out how to do that. So you hit the ground running. Um, But I think that what even in that situation, when you're at such a high throughput or high output company like Facebook, you even have to eventually realize that in order to own a project or in order to own something, you either have to be A, the most knowledgeable person on that product, which Facebook moves people off of projects every 18 months. So sooner or later, you might be the most knowledgeable person on a project because the person who was on it before you has literally moved off. And they do that intentionally to keep people on their toes and to keep, you know, to keep people interested. They want them to work on other parts of the business or, you know, they don't want people working on photo stream for 18 years. They want them working on it for a certain amount of time and then off. Like button, 25 years. Yeah, like button, 25 years. Or the, you know, remember the old integrated like button? Yeah, that's what you're talking about. The one that they shared with the JavaScript code you can put on websites. That was a thing for a while. Yes. Add this. You remember add this? I hated that thing. I think I think I vaguely remember. Oh, it. I it remember. Was, I remember it being a thing. I don't remember the functionality of it. Oh, it was a, it was a single JavaScript package that would render every social network's like add like tweet pin button all in a row because there was so many of them at one point in time. Oh yeah, there's there's like there was Dribble. There was like billions of share buttons. There's still sites to this day that have like the section for the share buttons oh, on yeah. their site, and it has like 15 buttons in it. Yeah, and most of the modern sites are like built into the browser. We don't need those buttons. We really don't. Yeah. Anyways. And, and also just focus on the important ones. Dan Abramoff's blog, last point. Dan Abramoff's blog, on each one of his posts, he has two links. Mm-hmm. First one is discuss this on Twitter, Yeah. which is a link to a Twitter search of the URL of the post. Hmm. Pretty smart. Pretty smart. Second one is uh, to the GitHub for that post. Yeah, so you can like do a PR. So you can PR with like <laughs> corrections or something. He has he asked people to do translations for him. Ah, and that's where they submit them. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's yeah, brilliant. excellent. Side point. Anyway, get back to what you're saying. Yeah, so it's like you just you just like I think that at some point in time you you realize like you internalize that level of responsibility and that level of risk assessment, and I think that that is when you're truly a senior when you can understand that the decisions that you make. And the types of technologies that you choose, if you're given the opportunity to choose them, or you're in a position to influence people, like you're at the table deciding the technologies you're going to use. Yes. You don't just suggest crap because you think it's good. You're not like, hmm, I think we should use 
hooks because I heard they're cool. Like if you're going to suggest those at a table, it better be the right thing. It better be the right thing. And you better have thought out or at least prototyped or, or really worked with it enough. You don't always want, there's this balance. You don't want the new hotness, but you don't want the old, old. You want something right in the middle. You want something that is new and cool, but is proven. Yeah, or at least works. becoming proven. And you have to know the difference. And that is yeah, that is the Jedi Master level stuff. That's the right? senior level. That's because the senior like, level. If you tell me that you're going to use a project I did even a couple weeks ago, you tell me that you're going to use hooks. I had a, We don't have juniors anymore. We only have mids. But there's a particular mid that we both know that you know, wanted to use MobX and wanted to use uh, hooks and wanted to use this experimental MobX hooks package on a project. And I was like, okay, if you want to try using that and you're the one that's building it, go for it. He got it to work. I mean, he's a brilliant developer. Um, he was able to get it to work, but they're, you know, it's just like the architectures that you choose, like React when you have a lot of animations, you better be willing to accept the responsibility when something doesn't work. Like something that you chose is an inhibitor of what you're trying to build. And I'm not trying to put this particular developer down because he might be listening for one. And two, I think he's smarter than me. What's up, man? You know who you are. Like he's pretty damn smart. But it's just, he he was a mid and he's, you know, straight out of school. He's 24, I he's, think. No, he's he's 16. He's like 23 or 24. I'm pretty sure he's 14 and a half years old. <laughs> Maybe he lied and he was one of those people that graduated very early. But he has a he has a birth certificate that says he's 24. That doesn't mean he's 24. Okay. Yeah. So he, you know, he he picked this technology, but I think this is kind of like a good contrast, and I'm not using him as a as like a, a punch punch uh, punch. What is it called? Like a pillow or whatever that you're punching a out with. Pillow. Like, now, what is <laughs> what the term the? that you? Damn it! What a is punching the punching bag? Yes, that one. Jesus. Oh man. Um. I'm not using him as a punching bag. I'm trying to like draw out the contrast. Like he's pretty brilliant and he thought of a good solution for that project and he, it works. But you know, when it comes to that project actually has to ship with animations and with complicated animation state that changes depending on, you know, um, the data that's being retrieved by MobX and the animations can't re-render because they'll start over because they happen to have to be green sock animations or whatever the situation is you know, I'm a principal. So the thing that I had to do was take the responsibility for those technical decisions and make them work and stay late and try to figure out how to make them work and, you know, show him, you know, what I'm doing and how I'm fixing it, having him code review my code that I'm writing against the code that he wrote to show him what I changed. Like that's what makes a principal engineer or, you know, the equivalent at a I guess principal is pretty well accepted. That's the title principal above and senior. We're using principal and senior interchangeably. Um, I, well, in my company, there's senior and then there's principal. Right, but we're, we're, we are using principal and what most no, of our audience will refer to I'm as senior. Referring right? to, uh, I'm referring to what's above a senior. Like a super senior? Some places it would be the senior, there's a different uh, senior one, two, three. It would be the fifth year senior? It'd be like the senior <laughs> three or they call them sometimes the um, the staff engineer. There's different titles. I've heard for that it. title, yes. But I think that the concepts are the same though. This is somebody uh that is the the difference between so we've talked about the difference from going from junior to a mid is kind of your stick to itiveness and the ability to figure things out that aren't given to you. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a big distinction. And then the second big distinction between the mid and the senior, slash principal, slash whatever you want to call it, uh, is the responsibility of decision making. 
I think that's, that's what I'm trying to say. That's the it. principle. I think the senior is 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 the responsibility of saying, if my senior tech director, whatever engineering manager, whatever comes to me and says, build me X, and they're like, I think it would be, I think it would work pretty well with React and Laravel on the back end, maybe. And you're like, nah, I think it, I think it would work really well with GraphQL and Node and React. And then the senior, the principal says, or the engineering manager says, okay, go for it. And then you build that thing and prove them, that's when you're a senior. When you can actually say, make a decision and you consider all the possibilities, all the risks and everything, or you work with your engineering manager, whatever's above you, to, I think engineering managers a little bit because it's different depending on the company, but either way, like you work with that person to devise or develop the risk assessment of like what is going to be used and how and why and whether or not it could be detrimental to the project or whatever, like it's ultimately their responsibility to sign off on the technologies. But it's your responsibility as a senior to come to them and say, I think it could work this way. You can solve the problem with this. Right. So you you have an element of the decision making. Yeah, but you're not the sole decision maker. You're not maker. the sole decision maker, but but you also bear a significant part of the responsibility yeah. of the decision making, right? So whatever the decision ends up being, whatever that is made, whether it's the one that you made or not, you bear the responsibility of bringing that project to completion. And so that is the biggest difference, I think, because a mid-level person, one, they're not making decisions. Two, sometimes, sometimes, th- sometimes they, they, they are. Yeah. Maybe not level architectural level decisions, right? I did when I was a mid, but maybe I was a senior. <laughs> you I was a, a mid senior. for a long time. You were, and again, these, these roles are very fluid, right? There, mm-hmm. There's going to be some overlap between things that you're going to be doing as a junior that probably could be defined in our and conversation as a mid. As a yeah. mid. Yeah. Um, a lot of times people's first experience with those kind of higher level responsibilities comes from some fortuitous project that's kind of put in your lap and you have to make lemonade out of lemons or something like that. You know, it's kind of, Mm -hmm. all of it's fluid, but I think that that's why it's so hard to define. And that's why it's, it's kind of tricky, like for people who are new to the industry, people who are changing jobs, trying to figure out what exactly this role is at this company that I'm looking at or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, It can be pretty tricky because these, concepts, different places interpret them very differently. Different places have different structures of how these different roles are set out. Like, for example, my company uh, has in engineering, there is the engineer role and the engineer role has three different levels and they have numbers. Engineer one, engineer two, engineer three. Mm -hmm. One being the most junior and three being the most senior. And then the next level up is senior one and senior two. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, both those are technically "quote unquote" senior level engineers, but you've got one and two there. Next level up on top of that, I think it's principal. See, I don't even know because there's it's so many principal. levels. Have- it's principal. Yeah, I think it's principal one and principal two. So technically, those are higher up. On my team, we have principal engineers, we have senior engineers, we have engineers one, two, and three. And we all kind of work together. We're mm-hmm. all kind of working on the same things. I would say that the ratio of people who have the responsibility of decision-making between the senior and the principal are pretty equal, right? The, the principal is not always tasked with making all decisions for everything. The mm-hmm. senior, a lot of times, is making those decisions. And they're also both tasked with writing a lot of code as well. So again, just as an example, these roles are very fluid and we're not here telling you that, oh, this is exactly how it has to be. Da, da, da. No, but no. it gives you a frame of reference. And so hopefully you can go find a cool company or find a cool job based on these things. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it really just comes down to when I say like the responsibility, I don't mean like 
Like you should never be a lead engineer of any kind who is like so prescriptive on what's used because that stops innovation. Like if I were to tell the developer we're talking about a second ago that he can't use GraphQL, can't use MobX, and can't use hooks. Well, you better have a reason. Well, sure. You better have a reason, but you also, once you build something without hooks, like it's really hard to add hooks. And Abramov even yes. says that you shouldn't no, go back and rebuild everything no, with hooks. Do not because do that. They're, you know, they're for a specific purpose. And, you know, they, they work when you understand how they work. Uh, and they can do some really powerful things. See Kent Dodd's blog. Um, and they create some really interesting paradigms. But like if I were to say to him, no, you know, like, and the reason why I didn't tell him that, and it, 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 it certain parts of the project, it was impactful. And there was a lot on that project. A few people had to leave on vacation. Uh, one person had to go to a funeral. There was a lot of- Oh, geez. There was a lot of things that happened on that project. So I don't want to like say any one particular thing was the reason why it was rough. But um, it, it just like, if I had said, you know, you can't do that, like we're, we wouldn't have learned. I wouldn't, we wouldn't even had our episode on hooks. We wouldn't have talked about it, which, you know, at the time I didn't really know as much about hooks as I do, as I do even now. But like, you don't learn. You don't learn if you don't try new things and you don't, you don't discover the friction in technology without adding in things that cause friction. And yes in that friction is where you learn how to be a better developer and you learn how to make the stick to it. If the grit of development comes from those situations where things don't glue together well, like I think, and that's one of the things you can have after having a lot of experience developing stuff is that the perspectives are different. Like when you're younger, you're like, man, Laravel seems like it's really cool. And I remember at the time, you know, tech directors at the time who are you know, even one level above that I am now were like, well, you know, I think that I, I'm really used to using CodeIgniter and PHP. I do not want to use Laravel and Postgres or Laravel and Mongo. Um, I don't want to try these technologies that I don't know. And, you know, they're, they're the ones that are ultimately responsible. But it's like you, the way that when you look back at it now, when I look back at it now, I totally understand their decisions. But I don't want to make some of those same decisions. I want to, I want to make it so that people, as long as the project can get done, and I know that, depends on how big the project is, but... If something goes really, really south, I can jump in there and fix it. You know, the, the level that I am now. Yes, that's true. So, and I'll work weekends. I'll work nights. I'll work whatever it takes to get it done. And I kind of know when, I think the shorter projects are trickier because you, you have less time to realize they're going south. But a larger project that's like two or three months long, which I wish I could be doing those projects all the time as opposed to you know, a mix of small and large projects you you see the trajectory and you understand and you 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 can just see from the outside if the technologies are jiving if the team is jiving if they're making progress you can see the progress and if you see the progress let them do what they're doing let the let the engineers figure out let the front end developers let them figure out what technologies they want to use don't prescribe them yeah you're like uh you're like neo in the matrix you can see, just see all the code you see it's yeah i mean it's funny blonde, you do blonde, brunette, redhead. Yeah. You don't even see the code anymore. You just see all things. You kind of do. You start to just you start to just see you see patterns and you see you see the trajectory of the project and you see the best practices. You look at the code reviews. You set up the repo so that people can't commit to master. They have to have developed. They have to do pull requests. And then you code review and you and you make 
And I'm a big fan of not even code reviewing everything myself. Like I've gotten to the point where you shouldn't being, be code. No, that's not a code. Well, I, no, no, like no, no, not of my own code, of their oh. code. I'm not the single source of code reviewing. No, it should be everybody should be everybody should anybody should be code reviewing someone's yes. code who isn't them. Yes, that's how we do it on, on my yeah. team. You, and, it's it's every developer's responsibility to get another developer to code review their yeah. PRs. And maybe the maybe the principal architect, the engineer, the tech lead, the engineering manager, whatever, whoever that person is, senior developer, whoever is the one who's responsible for that project, maybe they review the one that goes to master. Yeah. You know, or like, like a release branch or something. The like release that. branch or something. Like but I mean like that kind of perspective is what you get. Cause I used to be more militant. Like I used to I used to like because it's it's such the wild west. Like if you don't um It really is. If you don't enforce any kind of anything oh people will be pushing straight to people master pushing straight to master they'll you know just breaking all kinds of stuff write like, code like write write classes completely different than everybody else does putting in tabs like oh you know you know writing oh, in man. standard instead of oh, you know man. adding colons leaving out those semicolons putting in those extra commas you know we know how much you love that greg yeah but i mean i think that that's just that's kind of what i'm getting at is like the levels whatever they are above the senior developer who is and that's the that's why like senior developers can be I mean obviously there's senior developers in the world that are smarter than me and much better at coding than me um even in similar industries because the titles don't really matter it's more of just the level of responsibility and the way that you think about things and the level at which you assess risk and the way at which you you think about accelerating a team like that's where I think if you go above, let's just go like one level higher. So you're above this, whatever this elusive like principal, senior three, engineering manager, tech director, whatever that role is. The next person above that would probably be the head of engineering. I would say above like the engineering managers would be the head of engineering. Some sort of, it's usually referred to as some sort of director level. Yeah. Direct, the word director itself is usually reserved for something around this area. Yeah, some kind of director. And, and that person's responsibility is completely different. That person may never write code, but their responsibility is to see the forest from the trees and understand how to build teams. And that is something that I'm doing a lot of research on right now and trying to figure out, you know, what is that next role and how do you be good at it? Because it has nothing to do with coding. It, it has, has very little to do with Very coding, little. Yes. It has to do with people skills. It has to do with the ability to manage people. It has to do with the ability to understand. Like I've done hiring before and, you know, I've worked, I've hired some people that, you know, may not, didn't, I may not have turned out that great because it's really hard to tell within a hiring process if someone's good. It's really yes. hard. It's really hard to know what makes a good developer unless you have more time with them. And yes. I think what makes really good directors is that they think more about how people think than what actual code they write. And obviously you have to know we're going to have a whole podcast on hiring and, and, and job searching and all that. But you it's more than just knowing. You have to know that the person knows how to code. So you have to do, we'll probably argue about this, but you have to do some of the... You have to find some way to... Some way to measure. They know what they're talking about. Yes, and that is a very thing. That is a thing in our industry that is... An unsolved problem. An unsolved problem. And some places have better systems than others, but they don't always only base it on technical coding interviews. They base it on a lot of other things. But I think that the really good director level people, just they just know when they meet somebody. They know the way they think. They know if they're compatible. 
And as they manage that person, they have their one-on-ones with them. They ask them why they make certain decisions. They start to develop a profile and a risk assessment on people, not projects, people. So then you start to know like, I can rely on this person. I can trust this person. I can give them more responsibility. In this certain scenario. I should scenario. promote them. Well, I should promote them. I should, I should be putting attention on this person. I should be giving this other person extra motivation. I should be, you know, good directors will say, oh, you know, I should probably have some training resources available for my employees. And I, then, should, I should put our juniors with Greg so that they will learn not to use standard JS in their projects and not commit <laughs> things to master. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and understanding that is really hard. Like, how do you build, like, you know, the people at, at Facebook who have, the philosophy of move fast, deploy to prod on like your first week and you have these technical coding boot camps that they have at their company when you first get hired. And if you can pass the boot camp you're in, like that process was well thought out and it was geared specifically for a certain kind of developer, like the people that can move fast and build things. You know, like they, I think, I'm not speaking for them, but like I've heard some people from Facebook say that, you know, Maybe the first time they built a product, they didn't build it the right way. And then they built GraphQL reluctantly because they had to, because they have a billion daily active users, you know, and they have the graph. And then, you know, you think about like how these people think about how how to move their product and their teams forward. That is a very, very good skill that I wish to have one day. And that's like the level above. That's, that's, that's Yoda level stuff. That's Yoda level stuff. And, like you look at DHH, I mean, he's beyond, beyond that level. But like, he's starting to think about how does this industry get better? How yes. does the industry deal? I haven't read his book yet. I, I still have it. Come on. Um, we got to well, have, have book club. Well, I got, you know, I got to find the time to do it. When you do it. Anyway, yes, DHH is an example of all the things that you've been talking about of the, what we'll call tech director mm-hmm. or engineering manager level person, but also like the next galaxy brain level after that almost right like what is even bigger than your own company yeah how do you how do you move things in the industry overall and so i think that's a very good point because i don't think that that level that manager slash influence uh, not influencer but like thought leader oh geez that's such a terrible you're such a business person right now your your mba is showing um (laughs) Industry leader, yeah. we'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Manager slash industry leader level person. I don't think that gets talked about enough. I think that there's a lot of discussion around these kind of individual contributor levels because yeah. that's what a lot of us do. And that's what a lot of us have experience in. But the next levels above that seem like they really haven't been figured out yet. And I think that that goes partially to web development being relatively young as an industry. Mm-hmm. in terms of the way it looks right now. And so those levels of management really haven't been figured out. I mean, you and I have both worked at companies that don't even have a CTO. Mm-hmm. And we're technologists that work at these companies. So that's kind of a thing where if you're a technology person, if you're a developer, if you're a QA person, you work at a company that's not necessarily specifically a technology company, You know, that's still an uphill thing that you have to battle with. So if that's the thing that still exists and... Someone like a DHH or someone like a Dan Abramoff or Kent Dodds, people who are out there trying to make the industry better, that's still a relatively new thing too. And so I think a lot of people don't really know what to do with them, how to handle them, how to think about them, right? Like if you went to your office today and said, hey, I read this book by this guy named David. 
Mm-hmm. And I would like to do all these things that this guy named David told me to do. I mean, there's going to be a good population of people that are going to look at you like you have a third eye and they're not really going to know how to, mm-hmm. how to grasp that. So how do you, how do you deal with that? How, how should our fair listeners who are thinking that they're seniors, how should they deal with that sort of thing? Yeah. I think like the, the thing about that is it, it kind of an inverse way of answering that question is if you're, if you're a senior level developer and you're constantly thinking bigger than what you're given, you might be one of those people. I think that's an excellent way to put it. And if you are one of those people, then comes the really, really, really hard task. And that is, if you care enough about bigger picture things, that you're reading DHH's book, you're watching Twitter, you're reading Kent Dodd's stuff, you're not particularly just the development stuff he does, but also the career growth stuff that he talks about and speaks about and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, that is my jam. Like that is the kind of stuff that I want to read or look or think about. And you're reading like, you know, Managing the Unmanageable, which I've used as one of my picks once. It's like a book about how to think about different kinds of developers because, hey, guess what? We're not all people who sit inside of a room, you know, with, yeah, yes, you with, are. Black, yes, we are. with black eyeliner and black clothes on. And a hoodie. And a hoodie. Cheetos. Usually what I wear. No Cheetos, but usually what I wear is, uh, is black pants, black shirt, hoodie. black Apple watch band and a hoodie. And black shoes, black Ma- Toms. Mountain Dew. I'm, I'm known for my black Toms. And pretty much just wearing all black clothes. Cheesy puffs. No cheesy puffs. I don't eat cheesy puffs. Um, but like, you know, you, people look at me and they're like, oh, that guy's a developer. And it's like, he looks like a developer. Kind of looks like that dude from Grandma's Boy wearing the trench coat and like sitting in the, in the clothes, that in the little chair that like goes back. And he's oh, like, no. I am not a robot. I'm like that guy. <gasps> That's not how all developers are. Like developers are just people. And, you know, they're all usually pretty smart people and they're not all nerds. And you kind of have to understand that different people are different, have different personalities. And I guess what I'm getting at is like, if you're at a company like that and you think that you can make a change, you kind of have to just test the waters. You have to be like, hey, I think it would be really interesting if we did X. And then your manager's probably going to go crickets. Hmm, I don't know if we can do that. It doesn't really fit in the project structure. And you're like, okay, you have two decisions right there. You can either say, you know what? This company's not for me. Or you can try a different way at a different time. You can- Or just do it yourself, right? Depends what it is. Like I mean, have a proof of concept of some sort. There, there are different ways. I agree with your main yeah. point is that there are different ways to present these things. But you are also right in that you do kind of have to make your own opportunities, right? You kind of have to, if you're in a position where you feel like you need to branch out or, or do different things or do bigger, you have to kind of try it yourself. You have to kind of- figure out a way because a lot of cases you're not going to have the perfect opportunity handed to you. No. And you, you also might, the other thing I would say is the perfect opportunity might not be the next company you interview for. No, you might just need to get a new job and then you'll find out that that place isn't that great either. And that's one of the things about, I don't want to get too much into like interviewing and thinking about talking to companies, but you, you're interviewing them too. And you have to ask them blunt questions. Yes. How much do you care about technology? Do you care about technology? What if I came to you and said, I have this great idea to increase, don't use business terms. Like if you said to them, oh, I have this great idea to increase productivity, increase, you know, decrease cost and, you know, have a better ROI. They're going to be like, who the hell is going to say, no, it's a bad idea. They should be able to understand all those things in the context of technology. No, I know. But I mean, if you go to... Well, that, that's what I'm saying. If you, yeah. if you are asking, if you're trying to figure out if a company really values technology, you should be able to say, okay, I want to try to do this 
And without explaining to the people that are interviewing you, they should be able to understand, oh, there, this is the business impact of what you are suggesting. Yeah. I understand that. That's, yes, that's a good idea. We'll give that to you. Yeah. And if they don't, then maybe you don't want to work there. You probably shouldn't <laughs> want to work there. So if you suggested, say you suggested to your manager that you think it would be really productive to have two days working from home for everybody on the engineering team. And they were like, well, I don't know if that'll work because of the way that our meetings are structured. Then you then you pull out your copy of Remote by Jason Fried and David Heinmeier Hansen. You slap them in the face with it and well, you walk off. <laughs> I mean, that's one way that you could approach that, I guess, <laughs> Albert. <laughs> the other way is that you you suggest, okay, well, let's have you know uh, one single work from home Friday per month, and see how that goes. It's a fair start. And then you start to see, like, well, you know developers might work better when they're not in the office. Developers might work better if you don't have nine meetings a day. Oh, hey, Zoom is a thing. Zoom is a thing. And then you start to realize, well, you know, a lot of people are working with remote workers on a daily basis, either whether they're contractors or remote teams. You know, you have to learn, and that's what DHH talks about in a lot in this book, is that a lot of companies are remote companies or you have a subsection of the company that is remote. And those people are kind of, you know, treated through a... There's like a, you know, one of those lead developers might interface with that team and then they give that lead developer work who then gives the work to the internal team. And then they say, well, why do we got to fix all this crap? And it's like, well, if that remote developer was in the same conversation as you working on the same things, you'd probably have a better way of dealing with that, you know, of like of executing with remote workers. And a lot of what, I, I haven't read remote, but a lot of what I think he talks about based on what I've read on Twitter is that all workforces can be remote. You should treat every workforce like you have remote workers. Yes. And if you do that, then you can work with remote workers better and then your company can save money. You build processes around remote workers because a lot of times people working remotely work better. Mm -hmm. And so if you build in the support and the structures to help them work better, guess what happens? They work better. Everyone works better. The whole thing works better. Yeah. And you spend less money on real estate. Well, I mean, that's the ultimate end game, but like some companies will always have a place to work. But, you know, the, the point is like the, if you have, you know, you can be more flexible. People can have more live work-life balance. They have to go to a doctor one day, work from home in the afternoon, go to the doctor in the morning, work from home in the afternoon. If you have these systems in place and you treat your team like they can work remote and you have reasonable expectations that you know, you know, the, the responsibility of delivering work remains, whether you're not, you're, you're remote or in the office and you start developing these systems around working remote, then people can have a somewhat of a work-life balance. They don't have to be at the office till yeah. nine o'clock. Like, you know, if you think you're going to have a late night and someone like me works an hour and 20 minutes from my office, you say, you know, at five, head home, have some dinner, go for a walk, be back on at eight and work until midnight. Maybe that has to happen. But Maybe. the point is, if you already have those systems in place, then people understand the expectations around that. And then if that person does work until midnight, give them the next morning off, yes. assuming you can. Yes. And these like are it's all a give things, and a take. Yes. These are all things that come from having a structure of, of these various levels of the de of developer that we're talking about, right? Like you can have uh, a team of, a few juniors and a few mid-level people and a couple of seniors. And if you know that there is the structure of the seniors kind of are building things, but also kind of have a grasp on things, there's a little bit of that mm -hmm. management. They're kind of dipping their toe in the management water a little bit there. 
and then you also have a strong structure of supervising your your senior people to make sure everything is is kind of keeping up like that is engineering manager level stuff right the idea behind getting to that level is not to have a tighter grip on your team is to have a looser grip yeah. on your team right this is a fundamental thing this is something that uh, i try to talk about quite as much as that if you're a really good manager you shouldn't have to micromanage people you shouldn't right micromanage you have to have the right people that's part of it but if you're in charge of hiring then that's on you too well sometimes so, it's hard to figure out who's good but i know what you're true. saying yes yeah. yes yeah. so so micromanagement is not a reaction to your employees not doing what they're supposed to be doing it's a it is a symptom of poor management and so when you're thinking about these things, when you're moving from a senior level to a manager level to a galaxy brain level, um, these are the kind of things that you want to think about in order to improve the things around you. And mm-hmm. it becomes less about the individual contributions that you make to an actual code base and more around structures of how people work. Yeah. Right. And that's where you're getting into a level of like, I'm starting a company. I'm starting a, mm-hmm. an agency. I'm starting a technology shop, a dev shop or whatever. Those are the kind of levels that you're talking about there when you're, talking about galaxy brain developer, like yeah. super manager, person developer, graduate level management developer person. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people that create shops will do it because they think they can do it better. And I think that that's an interesting philosophy. I don't think that I can manage better than my boss. I don't think so. But I, I, think, I think that's, let me finish. I think yeah, that's yeah. because he has 20 years of experience doing exactly what I do. So no matter what I know, no matter how much I know about technology, no matter how my personality is, which I think my personality is pretty decent. I don't know. People might say differently, but <laughs> he's nodding his head no. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's, there's just a certain level of like, there's a business acumen and there's a, there's a level of, he's just been doing this for so long that every problem that I could possibly see in the seven years that I've been doing this, he's seen four times now. Yes. And that like multi-dimensional Tetris that he's playing with the different situations that he's in is a product of that experience. And I don't think that he's a micromanager. I mean, he doesn't tell me what to he's do. He's really not. He's not. And I think that he's gained that experience for so long of, of, of being a business owner and a manager and all of these things that, you know, you, you, you want to model the way that you think off of those people. And all I'm saying is that there's some people that, will go off and create a tech shop and then create a really poor team, create yes. a really poor situation or a place with really bad expectations. And this is particularly in the smaller volume kind of like dev shoppy type things where they're trying to get work to be profitable, to keep hiring people and doing those things. Like you don't take the time. I'm probably specifically talking about like digital agencies. They don't always take the time to think about they, don't, they also don't have the affordance to take the time to think about how to build a high-level remote engineering team like Facebook. I mean, they just don't have that luxury. But, you know, the people that do think like DHH and are galaxy-level thinkers, they, you know, they, they do create some, some of the best teams that I've heard of. You know, the certain aspects of the Facebook dev team, the Spotify development teams, the... Twitter and the PayPal's of the world, like the teams that are run really, really well come from those kind of galaxy level thinkers. Having them at the top. Yes. And having them at the top. Your point about the experience is correct. And also that perspective can be applied at all the levels. 
mm-hmm. right? So one of the reasons why a mid-level person is going to be able to do the things they do versus a junior is because they have that experience of being a junior, mm-hmm. right? Because everybody starts somewhere. And so they know all those mistakes already. Yeah. And so since they've made all those mistakes, they know what to look out for, what to avoid, why you write the tests mm-hmm. because they've been bitten. And so they know that in the long term, if I spend a little bit extra time up front to make sure my structure and everything is correct, that's going to save me a lot of time and a lot of late nights later. Mm-hmm. And that experience, that, that effective experience applies at all the levels. The mid is more experienced than the junior and therefore they know those mistakes. The senior is more experienced than the mid-level person and therefore they know those mistakes. The engineering manager, fifth-year senior, I don't know, is more experienced than the senior and so they know those mistakes. And then the, the, the higher-level managers all have been those things, mm-hmm. right? And so that's where the quality of their teams and the, 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 there's always going to be a reason why the higher-level people do what they do and most of that comes from the fact that they've experienced it and they've done it before themselves. Yeah. I think one of the things that's like a little, um, it, it's like, it, it kind of goes into, cause we went to that uh, JSLA thing and they were talking about po- imposter syndrome. And I think that that's like an interesting thing to kind of bring in right here too, is that when you move from one of those positions to the next, you're always kind of feeling like you're not there yet. Yes. So you kind of push yourself back down and you're like, well, like I even, I'm literally bringing this up because I'm thinking about that right now. Like, you know, I'm a principal engineer, whatever that means. At a startup, I might just be a senior. Like maybe a startup, I'd be higher, but like at a, at a, like a, like a really good dev shop, like but Facebook, yeah, I'd be like a mid A different senior. company, you're going to be at a different level. You're going to be different levels. But my point is like, there's always this like, um, this, there's this inequality of like what people what people think different positions are different places this inequality or what's the dissonance to where people think you know I personally think have often thought in the past like I'm not good enough to work at like Google but what's the next step for me after working and what I'm doing for so long Google it's either working at Google working at Facebook starting my own company working at a higher position at an agency or you know going to an actual engineering firm and just learning. I can continue learning. Three guys in a garage. Well, or like a big company or like a, you know, a, a, a LA startup of some size that's like larger, like, I don't know. Um, there are a lot of them now. There's a lot of them. But like the thing is you could go there and then you can learn. You can basically say, I want to be a developer and I want to understand what you're all doing. And you kind of just absorb information but I don't really know if like I could go into a place like that and be like, I will be your engineering manager. Like, do I know enough about building teams? I think I have the right kind of personality and the right kind of thought processes around it. But do I have the experience to do that? I don't know. I don't think you have a specific experience, but... Could I do it? I think you could do Maybe, it. Yeah. I think you've done it more than you think you've done it. But that's imposter syndrome. That's imposter syndrome. So it's that's like... A, <laughs> that's kind of imposter syndrome in a, in a nutshell right there is that everybody has a lot more experience than they think they do. Yeah, and I think the reason why I'm bringing this up is to is to say that, you know, if you're a junior level developer or a mid-level developer listening to this and thinking, you know, I'm not ready. Like, the way that you're explaining that makes a lot of sense, but I don't know if I'm ready. If you understand what I'm saying at each of those levels, like if you understand what I'm talking about when you're a junior and you're ready to be a mid and you believe that, you could take on tasks that people give you and you could do them on your own, you're already a mid. 
You just need the experience and someone to give you the opportunity. Yeah. If you're already thinking like that, you are one. Maybe you're not being recognized for it and you should ask for it. You should also ask for more money. Well, that's always Albert's answer. But I think the more important to me when you're a junior, mid, you should ask for money and you should ask for what you should be compensated for what you believe you're going to, you should be compensated for. And you can look that up and figure that information out on the internet. Make sure you tweet Gwerg and ask him. Oh, he, knows, he knows all about it. I was it. underpaid for a long time. I never he really thought about, about I never really thought about it only as money. I thought about it more of what am I learning? How am I, am I still learning something? If I'm learning something on my job, maybe not now, but back then when I was a junior mid, maybe a beginning of being a senior, if I was learning something, I'm, I'm like fully fine, you know, taking part of what I'm learning as compensation maybe. And it's harder when you start lower and you don't jump around. So like if you're jumping from place to place to place, it's easier to ask for more as you move. But then you also don't, you don't always, like if you, if you make the right jumps and you're always moving into something that's better, the team could be better, the process is better, the whatever is better, but the grass isn't always greener. Sometimes, like your question originally was, how do you get these processes changed at your company? How do you propose an idea? Well, sometimes it just takes the grit and the stick to to stay at your place, that where you're at, and work on making it better. Because if you want to be one of those galaxy level, next level engineers above, a principal above of whatever, an engineering manager, who really thinks about how to how to build and mold a team and how to mentor developers? You know, the only place you're going to do that is a place with, is at a place. The place you're going to do the best at that. Well, let me think about that. <laughs> the place that you'll have the more opportunity to do that is at a place that is slightly dysfunctional. But Ooh, yeah, mm-hmm. but but you might actually learn by seeing at a place that's more functional. Yeah. So then you will see managers that are better at a place that's highly functional and you will have more role models that you can look up to and you will have more mentors. But you won't necessarily have anything to fix. But you won't have anything to fix, maybe. Which is fine because continuing a legacy of good management actually in and of itself is a worthwhile goal. Well, yeah, you learn how to be a good manager, but maybe you don't learn how to have the grit to solve some really screwed up engineering problems because the problems are all solved. So maybe... Maybe. I mean, there I, is something to be said to that... Um, Scaling good management is extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Extremely difficult. It combines all of the hard parts of hiring, grooming, individual contributors, scaling both headcount and also project size, complexity, whatnot. And uh, culture. And culture across an organization that is oh, across a lot of different functionalities within an organization. It's very, very difficult to scale good or good, uh, good management. And so you run into those problems. And so there is something to be said, like, I, I don't think this is your point, but I, I want to specify that you don't necessarily have to quote unquote fix something in order to be good at the management levels or galaxy brain level, right? There is something to be said for continuing to grow good processes mm-hmm. and keeping good process in place, like, like maintaining the garden is also in and of itself a worthwhile task. And so that should not be underplayed or, or underemphasized. It's a good thing to be able to keep that going. But yes, you're yeah. I agree with you. I don't, Long way around, I agree with you. Yeah, I don't I don't mean to say that like if you're at a place that's run really well, that you should leave and go find a dysfunctional company. I'm not no, saying that. No, don't do at that. <laughs> don't please don't do that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that um 
it, it can be very, very um, eye-opening <laughs> to work at a place at times that, you know, at times, and companies also, the thing you have to consider is that, you know, companies that are very successful are going to be, hopefully, have a better um, structure. If they're successful and there's money running around, then they're yeah. going to start thinking about how do we make things better. Yeah. When a company is not doing so successful, their goal is to be successful, not to be better. Yes. So, you know, sometimes it's not great to work at a startup with no funding and then you'll end up finding that you do all the hard work and then, you know, two years later, you know, all that money they promised you in an IPO is nowhere near anywhere and they're going bankrupt and they can't pay your paychecks. It's happened to friends of mine. So is that a subtweet to Uber employees right now? <laughs> No, I mean, they're, I don't want to get into that. But Literally like, the worst IPO of all time. That's not even an exaggeration. You know, it's the not. single worst IPO of all time. It, but it, anyway. It hasn't, uh, it hasn't halved. It's, it's like two, or, it's like $10 below what they opened. They opened at 45 they and it's at 42. 45 and it closed at 42, which literally no IPO has ever closed that low, like that far below its, yeah, in price. the opening day. But in like, I remember, day. I remember when tw- I was really excited when Twilio went public, and they opened at sixty, I believe. And then I think, like within three weeks, they were at thirty. Yeah, this and- is also to be fair, though, that is the typical path for yeah opens high for the for the investors, and then it drops when all the investors sink their shares. But I think that you know. To Twilio's credit, I don't know what their stock ticker price is right now, but they went from the 30 they were at for a couple months and they slowly went up higher than they opened at. Yeah, Facebook went through the same thing. I think Facebook opened in the 40s as well, went down quite a bit. I think it was at 20, 25. I thought it was at like 12 or something like that. No, I don't know if it ever went that low. I think it was at like 20 or 25. But it went very, very low. Very and low. then they started printing money. Slowly, slowly, slowly and printing money. Up. And now they're like 200 a share. But I don't know, like... Yeah, I just think that it's it, one of the things that I would say, like to kind of close my thoughts on this, is that the only thing that you can do as like a an individual contributor or something else is to try to figure out how to be better at what you do and understanding more of what other people do and being empathetic to what they're working on or with and trying to understand. If you can start to think larger, like how could this business be better if we did X, then that's good at any level. At any level, yes. You're an individual contributor working on code every day and you're like, we would be better if we had continuous integration. Yes. Continuous delivery. I heard about it on- Heard about it on a podcast. On the Public Function Show. Well, yeah. You heard about it on the Public Function Show. Greg Parsons told me about unit testing. Albert Albert made a joke about blue-green and VS Code. And I was like, what the heck does that even mean? And I was then I went and researched and I was like, wow, blue-green deployments, that's crazy. That's so smart. Red-black, man, Netflix, that's crazy. Is that Chaos Monkey? Oh Oh, my God. uh, Chaos Monkey is a thing. What is red-black? They call it red-black. They call it red-black. That's so on brand. It is, yeah. Facebook's blue, I think Facebook was, I don't know, Facebook didn't do... I was listening to that podcast today about from the, the one of the Facebook engineers. Which I have it in the show notes, but um, he said originally they didn't even do blue green deployments. They didn't even do continuous integration what? delivery. Yeah, because they all they did was stay up all night and drink Red Bulls and just like. Psh. Well, they they would Remember have that like scene in the movie. Like yeah, they would have the every Tuesday I believe it was that they would all get on IRC and they would sit there for five hours and integrate PRs and to push it out. And if you weren't there to represent your PR, they'd pull your code. 
Oh man, that sounds terrible. And then they switched to continuous delivery and now they deploy like 50 times a day or whatever. Continuous but, delivery is, is the holy grail. That's the goal. It is. It's very hard to get there. But um, I mean, we had our project that we were doing uh, down to weekly deployments, which is crazy for a marketing brand. Was this the one that you and I worked on together? Yeah, or it, was, it was down to weekly deployment. We could deploy more than one, more than once. We could deploy, we had the ability to deploy every single day. We didn't. But we didn't. We could have. We could have. We could have deployed at least. Oh, I remember. Yeah, we were, we were doing weekly deployments kind of at, right at the At the beginning, end. yeah, the beginning, and then it kind but, of changed. Yeah, and then we were also, we got to a good rhythm where it was, we had scheduled ones because mm-hmm. that's the only way to stay in sync with all the stuff that's in the backlog and whatnot. But we were pretty close yeah. to 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 getting a true continuous deployment for a project of that scale. Yeah. Which I am I'm pretty proud of that. I think that was that's a crazy. pretty pretty big project in my career. And I'm pretty proud of the work that I did there. So Yeah. The thing I was trying to say though is that uh, I mean with that patting ourselves on the back aside. <laughs> just like going back down memory lane. But like, if you think that your company could do continuous delivery or integration or could have unit tests or could have testing suites or, you know, some kind of uh, puppeteer-based, if you do a website, a puppeteer-based integration library or something, if you think that you could do that and you're a mid-level developer, build it. Just do it. Just do it. Or build a proof of concept of it. That's how I got promoted. Like I built stuff that my company needed. Yeah, don't do and it I, just to get promoted. Although that no, is often I mean, a side effect, but it you it do it does to learn a couple of things. You do it to learn, and the you byproduct is you get promoted to do <laughs> to make the process better for not only yourself but for other people on your team. Mm-hmm. It's to put out a better product so that your company is putting out a better product, uh, because ultimately every company is building something for someone. So, if you can make that product better in some way. Even if you're a junior level, it's going to help others. And so that's something that you should never be afraid to try. Yeah. And finding a way to do it is going to go a long way in allowing you to learn and grow and get better. Yeah. The other side of that that I would say is if is if you have those kind of ideas and you're met with resistance and you feel that there's just no way that that could ever be implemented, like your company which will not go for it, and that's what you really want to do, and you think it's a good idea, and they're and they're not doing that. Maybe you know, not that they're not um, accepting your idea, but you don't see that those kind of ideas are succeeding at your company. GTFO, like just get out. GTFO, yes, those are those are warning signs. Those are red flags. I've never, to be in my experience, I've never, I have never felt at my job that something will not be done. You just have a lot of other forces in the business saying maybe not now or maybe that yes this no but i've never felt like there was no way ever that any kind of idea of improvement wouldn't be accepted yeah if if you're if you're ever in a position where you're just like these people aren't going to listen to me no matter what then that's probably not just you they're just not listening to anybody they're not listening to DHH Galaxy brain level people. Like if you're bringing him DHH ideas and they're saying, nah, that just doesn't seem like that would work for us. What is this remote thing that you're talking about? What is this thing you're talking about? You don't want to sit in your assigned seat in this big long table where we all sit? What are you talking about? I mean, that's a very specific one. I just mean like if, if if you truly feel like the people that you're talking to 
just don't even understand what you're saying or don't agree with you or don't want to. If you're ever at a point then that way, like you can have a conversation with somebody and they can say to you, you know, I think that's a really good idea. What I usually hear when I propose these ideas is that's a good idea. Let's, let's put together something to talk about that and see where it could go. It's always, they always put the ball, a good manager will always put the ball back in your court and say, okay, prove to me or show me how that would work. And there's always a dialogue. There's like, you ping pong something to them and you say, I think this could work. And then they'll say, okay, I could see that working or I, or maybe ping pong it back to you and be like, okay, prove it to me. And then you ping pong something back and then they ping pong something to you. And then sooner or later, you're implementing change. And if you don't- Eventually, hopefully. But the thing is, sometimes it takes longer than you think it will. Sure. And there's other the other thing is there's other factors of businesses that you know you you don't realize until you're involved in them that you don't know you don't know the full picture. You you sometimes just think like you know that person is afraid of change or whatever, and that's not true. Sometimes there's just other priorities or aspects of the business, which is why another good thing that a manager will do is they'll always let you know what the priorities of the business are. So that's all I would say about that, is that your, your manager should always be letting you know what the priorities of the business are, being very clear and transparent about what those things are. And when you come to them with a solution to one of the problems they propose to you, they listen, and then they'll have a dialogue with you. And if you have all those things, you got a pretty good. There's potential there. If you do not have those things, then... Run for the hills. Not just because <laughs> that's a bad situation, but it's going to be very difficult for you to learn and grow and get better at it. Yeah, you can go like somewhere that. else where they all have those kind of things and you'll learn and grow. Yeah, it's almost like that's, that's the yeah. kind of minimum level that you need to have in order to grow a good technology team. I yeah. agree with all of your points, Greg. The only one thing that I would add is that the one thing you could do at any one of these levels to get better and to level up is to be a good teammate because mm-hmm. wherever you are and whatever you, it is you're doing, you're going to be working with other people and being a good teammate mm-hmm. is helpful at all levels, no matter what it is you're doing. And I'm going to take a sports analogy because I know you love these. Oh man. All right. Let's go back to that website. Sports. So organized <laughs> team sports actually makes a lot of sense because you have the different roles on the teams, right? You've got your superstar players who are like the leaders Right, you have a head coach who doesn't play, right? Who doesn't actually play at all, but has a very big impact on what is going on. Mm-hmm. Right? You got players who are on the bench and maybe don't play that many minutes necessarily, but they still have a big impact. Right? They help start players practice. They typically are more of the kind of gritty energy guys. They encourage others and they practice all the crazy cool handshakes and do some butt slapping. Every once in a while, yes. <laughs> Every once in a while, yes. With the consent, of course. Uh-huh. Um, and those people, even though they don't play that much, they still have a role in the team. Mm-hmm. And if that person is... If, you, if you're a bench player in whatever sport it is and you don't play that often, the ways that you are a good teammate that you make positive contributions is that you are upbeat and positive, right? You help coach, you help encourage, you motivate... Right, you help support the people who maybe are playing more or doing more minutes, doing more minutes, playing more minutes, and that's how you be a good teammate, and that's a positive, valuable contribution to the team that's going to help the team win. So that is my sports analogy. 
sporting. You can do all those things as a developer for all the people on your team. If you're a junior and you see other people on your team struggling, you can encourage them or help them. You can be an ear. You can be a rubber duck. Literally just be a rubber duck. Yeah. Rubber ducking, being a rubber duck, offering yourself as the rubber duck is one of the most helpful contributions you can make. Yeah. On a team of developers. So being and then a if, you, if you're also like a really, really smart rubber duck. No, rubber ducks are supposed to be dumb. Sometimes they're smart ones. No, I don't want my rubber ducks smart. I want them dumb. I like it when rubber ducks are smart. I want them to not have any idea what React is. No, I like it when they're smart. I don't like it when they're smart. Some of the best rubber ducks I've ever known are pretty smart. I have literal rubber ducks, like actual rubber ducks over there. Yeah, I know. Didn't uh, the one coworker of ours buy a whole box of them? Yes, he did. I'm pretty sure they had like influenza or something. In yeah, them. they're from, yeah. I washed mine, um, but I still use them. When I, was, uh, when I was teaching, I brought them to class. Gave all your kids influenza? No, I washed them. But I, would, <laughs> I took them out. I took them out and I put them at a table at the very front of the class. And I didn't tell anybody what they were for. I just, I just put them up there and they said, hey, what, what, what's, what's, what's with the ducks, man? I said, uh, you'll see. I, and I didn't tell them. And then we'd have class activities and I would be observing and I would see people struggling. And so what I would do, I was just come by. <laughs> I can totally see you doing this. I would just put the duck and I would just walk off. What the hell is this duck? What the hell is this duck? Why don't you tell him? Tell him about your problem. <laughs> He'd be like, okay. And they would look at the duck. You can see them like trying to, f- not even actually saying it, but trying to think of a way of explaining what they're doing to the duck. And they figure out what they're doing. They figure it out and they fix it. Mm-hmm. And then they try to give me a duck back. I say, no. Keep the duck. The duck is yours now. Keep the duck. You understand the power of the duck now. What was the, what was the thing that General Dama says in Babylon 5? No, oh, come on. Dude. Something about books where he doesn't, he, he never loans books. He only gives them away. He had, a, he had a, oh man, he had a, like a line where he like says it. Like he loans somebody a book. They're like, I read it and tried, he, they tried to give it back to him. He's like, no, you've paid forward. Some, something like that. He had a great line, mm-hmm. but that, that was the kind of my stuff. And then by the end of the class, I didn't have any more ducks. And then you ordered more influenza ducks. I think I had a bunch more. I still have, I still have a bunch here. I still have a lot. I should probably take one to my office. Yeah. They're pretty yeah. helpful. I just think that to, to summarize my points on this is that, uh, just always, always be, always be learning. Always be doing the learning. Yeah, like even if even if you're at like a level where you're like, you know, code is not as much of a problem for me anymore. I guarantee you, you're gonna learn something. I learn things every single day. Hooks. Not even just hooks. Like not even not even the actual technologies. It's more of just like, you know, how how to use or how to structure things. Like yes, I've, one of the one of the craziest things that I've realized is like when you work on like really, really big projects or you architect something really big, you think at the time that you're, for one, you're going into this thing, unless you're just brilliant and you already have an idea of how to solve it or there's a pattern that works, right? You can pick off the shelf Gatsby and it solves 75% of your problems. There's going to be 25% of the other problems you have to solve yourself. You could take Next.js off the shelf. It solves 75% of your problems. You're going to have to solve the other 25. There's always something that you can do. Like both of those both of those technologies are similar, but both of them give you some kind of guide rails. There's pages, there's components, there's all these things for front end, whatever. There's all these patterns. 
But then you get into like the whole episode about data jujitsu and you get into like, how do you get the data into the thing? And like, you know, some people probably listen to that and they were like, you're dumb. Why are you having these problems with these things? Well, you know, you don't understand or know. Go try it. You don't, under- well, it's not even whether or not the system doesn't work. It's like when you're in the process of building it, you can't see the end result. You can only see the end result when you're done. But once you build something that's sufficiently large enough and sufficiently uh, big enough to where it lives a long time, you'll realize that you coded yourself into like into problems, potentially. Yes, goes back to experience. It goes back to experience. Like I build stuff to this day where I'm like, that seemed like a really good idea at the time, but then I realized that it's not or like that that part of it's wrong. And then you think like, oh, well, that's why imposter syndrome comes from. Oh, I suck. I can't believe I can't build that. But I've started to realize that every single project you build augments what you believe about how to build something just slightly. And then it just slightly, just slightly augments you. And the more projects that you work on that you architect yourself, you start to realize that you're continuously improving what you're doing. Yes. So you're now building a continuous improvement, continuous delivery system for yourself. Yes. And the work that you do to where the next project that you work on is just iteratively better. And the next one is iteratively better. And every single project you go on to has its own problems. So say it's iteratively better, iteratively better in one way, and then you, you succeed, but it's not ideal in another way, and that's technical debt. And then if that project is continued, then you fix the technical debt iteratively better. You're always improving what you're doing. And when you get to that point, no matter what level you are, you can think like that. When you're, whether you're a junior, senior, mid, principal, architect, it doesn't matter, CTO, anything, you're always hacking on what you're always hacking on your process. Yes. And you're always getting better. And if you have that attitude at any level, you will be successful at any level of what you're doing. That's a great point. I actually have a very specific anecdote that goes to that. Um, For me, my continuous improvement story was that when I was a wee lad developer, and I was just starting out to use this thing called SAS that lets you do this thing called nest your selectors. I would get super lazy and just nest and nest and nest mm. and nest and nest and nest and nest and nest and continue nesting and keep nesting and nest again. Yeah, we got it. And keep, keep nest and mm-hmm. and also again nest. I've already fallen asleep because nesting. I didn't want to write classes because I was lazy. Yeah, and I wanted to take advantage of this cool feature called nesting. Mm-hmm. Well, when you have to go back and refactor that stuff, or you have to go back and fix something, or you have to fix a bug, you find out very quickly that nesting is bad. Don't want to nest. And so I figured out the hard way over the span of a couple of projects that maybe you shouldn't nest like four levels deep no, in three, your selectors. Three, two, I say two max. Three. I maybe. say two max. So th- it's good that you mentioned this because I kind of learned on my own that you had to do it this way. And then one day I was on a project and it had ESLint. And it had a rule. And I was looking at the the rules for it. And it said uh, max levels of nesting allowed as like one of the rules mm-hmm. that you can define. I think default is three. Yeah. I was like, wait, that's a thing? Yeah. You can put in a thing that doesn't allow me to nest further than I should be nesting? How amazing. How wonderful. But I come to that conclusion on my own through the fire in the flames of having to deal with that stuff on my own and having to fix my own code and figuring out through experience that that was a bad thing to do. So that's just my, my little example of mm-hmm. leveling up in the same, in the way that you were talking about. Yeah. I think it's important. Like if you're not trying to improve what you're doing, it's just no longer fun. You no. have to always be challenging yourself and always be thinking about ways to do things better. 
And that's the intuitiveness of what makes all of us engineers. Like, why do you want to develop code? Because you want to solve problems. How do you solve problems? Solve problems by doing and realizing that what you're doing is wrong and then doing it differently. Yes. Over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. And that's why some people get like fatigue in terms of learning things. But that's because, you know, a lot of the world that we live in right now, especially with front-end web development, is that it's going through a period of change, like to where, you know, the technologies that are good at this particular moment are not good in the future. And things keep changing and changing and changing and changing. Technologies change. I mean, Babel's here now. Oh, geez. Five years from now, we might not need Babel. No, it won't exist. V8 works well enough to not need it. Wasm. And all those old browsers, GTFO, IE8, 9, Edge, everything that's not Edgium. <laughs> Get out Everything of here. Everything that's not edgium, get the F-O. You know, when, when that happens, we won't need Babel. And then, you know, maybe Webpack won't exist. Oh, because man, web components be, will exist. Won't that be a day? And then you're just like writing, uh, you know, and then maybe the Shadow DOM doesn't even exist because it's part of V8. Won't you know? Reconciliation that. between markup might not even exist because it'll be in V8. You never know. You never know. Oh, what a lovely and then day. That would we'll be. just be writing components and see. Oh, man. And then Albert will learn about pointers. And then I'll finally learn about pointers. That's that's an yeah. excellent point. Greg, do you have a pick for us this oh, week? Oh, man. Uh, you know, the only thing that I really did this week that was interesting was kind of going on the same thing. Not going to get into like, you know, anything with gaming, but like the same kind of thing we were talking about last week with uh, our, our home stations. Um, since I got three monitors... Did I talk about that? Was on last week, right? Yes, we talked about that oh, last week. It's great. It's the best thing I ever did. So um, I just figured, you know, now that my three monitor setup is set, that it, it is a lot of monitor, by the way, which is going to lead into my pick. It's a lot of things to look at. But, anyways, um, I went in and I like just finally rezip tied and reorganized my whole desk. All the cables. All the cables, like just reorganized them all. Um, ran all the 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 what they call the display port cables through the monitor arms with the power cords and just like because I had been switching monitors around a lot so like the power bricks for the for the LG monitors were like just hanging off the edge and stuff and it just was really bad so I like went in fixed all that um, and then kind of getting to the pick the one of the things that I noticed when I had two monitors was I put like an IKEA light behind my monitors for a little bit of bias light. And I realized like I liked that better than having the light above me on in my office. So I really liked just turning off the light in the office and turning on the one light that was behind the monitor. But it didn't it didn't go across the whole desk because it's only one monitor or only one light. And then when I got the three monitors, it started hurting my eyes, obviously because I have like 10,000 pixels in front of me. Um, a bazillion million. With all kinds of, you know, backlighting. Um, it was a little jarring at first. And then I realized, you know, I should just, after I cleaned up all the wires and stuff, um, I decided like I wanted bias light that went across the whole desk. So since we're both purveyors of the Philips Hue system, yes, I finally just bit the bullet and bought the uh, light strip. The light strip. Which is so expensive. This is this is something that you, we've talked about a little for bit. For so long. For so long. But that- it's so expensive. That is literally the only reason why I haven't pulled the trigger on it because it's literally just a light strip. I think it's what, like like two feet of it, right? Uh, it's, Maybe a little bit more? It's like three, three feet, feet. Three feet. Three feet of, of what amounts to an LED light strip Yeah, that you can get for 
four dollars on Amazon that just plugs in by itself. The yeah. Amazon, the the Philips Hue one, the smart one that you can talk to and has colors and has colors is what eighty dollars. Eighty dollars on Amazon, so it's already discount. I think their MSRP is like a hundred. It's so expensive. Is it worth it though? Yes. Oh man. <laughs> the reason why it's worth it is because it has the. The, the like the different hues of white. So then it has like the lighter gold. The white, warmer. The warmer you colors. Have, you get all the temperatures. Everything. And you get colors? And colors. Oh. I don't know. The colors are kind of cool when you have a party, but like, well, I mean, it is nice having like blue bias light behind you because it calms you down, I think. And then you can have like pure white to keep you awake when you're working. I've also seen videos on YouTube of people doing the programmatic bias lighting. Yeah, I don't know how you would... I think you can do that, but you have to install a program on your computer that slows it down, and I'm all about the FPS. Well, I think what it... Uh, there's got to be a way to do it. I, the videos I've seen look amazing. It looks like the monitor is like your entire wall, essentially. And I mean, I'll, no, look, I'll look into it because I know the Hue has those adapters. Might be there's worth a program that you can install that'll yeah. do it. So what I'm talking about is, is the bias light, the light that's behind the monitors that just kind of lights up the edge of the monitors... There are programs out there where uh, it'll figure out what color of what is going on on your actual monitors and mm -hmm. it'll kind of replicate that where the light is around the edge. So it kind of bleeds off the edge mm -hmm. of the monitors into the light around. So it serves two purposes. It serves as the bias light, which helps ease the transition of light to not light for your yeah. eyeballs. But it's also part of the actual experience of the monitors, which is pretty cool, I think. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I like it. We will have a link in the show notes, a very expensive link. Oh, we'll have it. It's mm -hmm. an affiliate. It helps us out if you click on it. We appreciate it if you do. Greg, my pick. Mm -hmm. It's actually right over here. Let me go great real quick. What is, what is this? What is this? What is this? It's a box, like a bag for camera equipment. So we are bag people, right? So I've been looking for this bag for actually quite some time. Why'd so this, you get it in a military camo? It's like a fake camo. It's like an artsy camo. That's why I got it. Anyway. Artsy camo. Look, it's like a fake camo. Anyway, this is a sling bag um, designed for camera equipment. Yeah. So this bag, uh, I believe the actual title is the... Oh, what is it called? The made by a company called Hex. They're actually located here in Los Angeles. They have a showroom downtown. Did you go to their showroom? No, I did not. It opened like What's wrong week. with you? I don't know. I ordered... So, there's a long story. I've been wanting to buy this bag for a long time. I actually wanted one around Christmas, around Black Friday. They ran out of stock on Black Friday because they had a sale. It's like yeah. a 50%, like, like some absurd sale. And I really wanted to get one then. They ran out of stock. They just got them back in stock like last week. So, I've been waiting this whole time to buy this bag. But this is the Hex... Ranger DSLR sling. What it is is kind of a smaller sling style bag. So you just kind of wear it over one shoulder and it has a little top compartment. And this main compartment is designed for a camera and maybe like one or two other lenses, right? Depending on the size of your camera. Right now I have my Fuji X-T2 in here with uh, the 16 to 55 or 18 to 55, excuse me. I have a speed light and then I have like one of my camera straps and there's plenty of room. So you could definitely fit like a larger DSLR and like two lenses in here. Even a larger lens. Like are they just like hanging out there in them by themselves? Or are they... they oh, there's well, old dividers. There's little dividers. Yeah. So oh, this okay. section has 
a long flat divider that goes across the whole thing. So mm-hmm. you can put that on top if you want. You can put it on bottom. And it has the little dividers for the sections. The other cool thing about these dividers is that they come out. They're completely adjustable. So it's like the Velcro style where you can stick them in wherever you want inside the section. But they also lay flat. So when you take when you take them out, so when they're not attached to the walls, they will actually lay flat at the bottom. And you can kind of like flatten the bag down like this. So you can like pack it flat if you wanted to. So it has just enough room for like a camera and like one or two other lenses. And then there's like a whole section, like an organizer section with little elastic pouches for things like batteries, flashcards, stuff like that. And then there's a compact flashcards. Yes. There's zip drives. I Omega zip drives. <laughs> I had windows. My dad had one of those. My dad had one of those too. It was the most fun thing ever. Um, the other pockets on this bag, there's a small one on the front that is, if you feel it, fleece lined it's designed for a phone Ooh, fleece lined yeah that's right there i'm putting my phone inside it and then on the back there is another fleece lined pocket that is the size of like an ipad does it actually fit an ipad i believe it does my ipad's in the other room like an ipad mini or an ipad big uh ipad mini definitely will fit in here uh probably like a 10 inch ipad would probably fit i don't know about the 13 but like a i don't think 13 is bigger than that you could probably fit a 10 or 11 in here i don't know But this is a great little setup because I found a lot of situations that I'm in where I want to bring more than just my camera, but not enough to fill like a backpack. Hmm. Right. So this is perfect for if you're someone who shoots like a smaller mirrorless camera, you could literally bring like probably three lenses with you and like a like a smaller medium sized body. Or like two lenses and like a flash like I have. There's straps on the bottom for things like tripods and light stands and things like that. The organizer pouch I find is really, really nice because it has the compartments that you need. Like it has these stretch pockets that you need to like be able to see what's inside of there. And it has these bigger pockets for things like Compact flashcards. Compact flashcards and whatnot. <laughs> that's cool. Um, so that's a pretty cool bag. I, I've taken it around town a little bit and it's worked really well so far. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can kind of build a little, like, I don't know, like a little running gun kit that would fit in here. I have my eyes on a couple lenses, um, that are extremely expensive. So I don't know if they'll be coming anytime soon, but, um, this is something I'm hoping to take with me traveling as well. I think it'll work really well for that. And, uh, yeah, so I just got it last week and I'll keep everyone posted on, on how it works out for me, but I'm really excited to use this because this is kind of filling a space in my bag inventory that I've been wanting to fill for a while. So I and once you, once you do the photography thing, you're like, I need all the bags. I remember when I was doing photography a lot, I even bought like the $180 like um, hiking backpack with the camel pack and stuff. Yep. Yep. I actually have my eye on another backpack as well. I don't know if that'll be coming, but that one is specifically because I'm going to be traveling in a few months and I, I need a backpack of that size that also Just borrow mine. It's literally, I'll, I'll send you the brand. It's like a, $250 backpack. No, there's there's one I've had my eye on that I could also theoretically use as like a everyday go to work kind of bag as well. It might be the same one. Maybe. We'll talk about it. But yeah. I'll have a link to this uh, bag again. It's the Ranger, no, the Hex Ranger DSL sling bag. Um, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. I got it in the cool, uh, kind of this fake camo gray, like a it's geometric like a camo. Geometric it's like a green camo. geometric camo. So Pretty cool. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Greg, do you have anything else to, to tell us? Do you have anything else to follow us up on? No. Uh, got it. 
Okay. <laughs> well, if you have questions for Greg, he's on Twitter at Gregorski. I am at Al Park, A-L-P-A-R-K. The show is at a public function. We are on the web, publicfunction.show. If you want to contact us, publicfunction.show backslash contact, completely anonymous contact form. It goes straight to our inbox, but you do not have to put your name. If you do put your name, pronunciation guide would be very, very much appreciated. Yeah. Yes, and when you. this episode inevitably has a weird cut in the middle, you can blame Linux. It's, it's definitely not a Linux thing. I know you really want to blame Linux, but it's I'm definitely out. not. It's I'm, a Linux thing. I'm pretty sure I hit the wrong thing. Mm. PublicFunction.show. This is episode 22. So <laughs> PublicFunction.show backslash 022. The episode, the show notes, all of our show notes, all of our episodes are there. Go check us out. We'll be back next week. Greg, we will see you then. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs>